This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books and Anthropology, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host of the channel. And today we're talking to Dr. Robert Samet about his book, Deadline, Populism in the Press in Venezuela, published by the University of Chicago Press. Dr. Samet is an associate professor in the anthropology department at Union College. Robert Samet, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Reagan. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Um, so to begin with the interview, um, I just wanted to for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you developed interest in the topic, and really just how you came to write this book. Sure. Well, I think there's probably a long story and a short story behind every kind of book like this, and I'll try to try to keep the story short. Um, it goes back a long ways, though, to, to my days in advertising. Out of college, I ended up um, working as a, as a brand strategist first in Colorado and then in New York City. And my, my first day of work in, in the, our New York City office was September 11th. Um, it, was a, it was an office in Tribeca. And the experience of that day and the, that, the, the year that followed kind of propelled a series of questions that, that sent me back to grad school um, in anthropology. I had a lot of questions about what had happened in advertising, what was happening in our country, um, what kinds of wars we were getting into, um, and why these were wars being waged in the name of, of New Yorkers, most of whom were, were, not, were not fond of this. Um, so in grad school, I started looking around for different projects and places to, to carry them out, a place that I could do a project on media, security, and democracy. And uh, originally, I had, I had looked um, to possibly do something in Israel, um, but for a number of reasons, Venezuela uh, established itself as maybe the best best place to look at the relationship between media and politics. Uh, at, at the time, Venezuela had the most diverse um, and really exciting media ecosystem in the world. And there was also the fact that circa 2006, when I landed in Venezuela, I think my own um, political discontent merged with the, the forms of political discontent that we were seeing um, or that had crystallized in Venezuela um, at that point, Venezuela was really kind of establishing itself as a kind of counterpoint to the United States in the Western Hemisphere. And for that reason, I, I, it, it seemed like an interesting and exciting place um, to go and do research. Um, by the time I got there, there were a, a number of other people who'd also been drawn to, to Venezuela for similar reasons. And a lot of people were looking really closely at Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution and some of the exciting and interesting new programs and projects that had been launched under that banner. 
But no one at the time was really looking at what was going on with the opposition. And that was the the kind of the niche that I fell into. Rather than looking at, at Chavismo, I started looking at the opposition. And media was really key to understanding the opposition. I'll, I'll explain a little bit of that in a minute. Um, but yeah, so I, I ended up I ended up in Venezuela because I was drawn by Chavismo. Um, but instead of looking at Chavismo, I looked really mu- a lot at the, the reactions and the backlash against it. Right. Um, and so that's perfect. That takes us to the next question, um, because you mentioned Chavismo and um, the book focuses on Venezuela and journalism in Caracas. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the political backdrop um, yeah. during the time you did your research. Tell us about Chavismo, um, about Chavez's politics and rhetoric, because obviously, as you say, you're looking at the opposition to it. Yeah. And you know, this is, I think the thing that everyone knew about Venezuela in that period was Hugo Chavez. He was a, a larger than life figure and still is, is a larger than life figure, even in death. It's one of the things that I think a lot of us who've studied and worked in Venezuela have done is to try to decenter Chavez from these analyses. And yet, even in my own discussion of it, it's hard to get away from him because he, he's, he's kind of a place marker for larger processes and political uh, political projects that, that begin coalescing as early as the 1980s. Venezuela, I think, is arguably the center of, of the left turn in Latin American politics. There are a lot of political commentators that looked at the left wave, the rise of people like not just Chavez, but Evo Morales in, in Bolivia, Lula in Brazil, and the different colors and stripes of this left wave. But Caracas and Venezuela, for many people, is the the center of that left turn. Latin America, as you know, was emerging from dictatorships in the 1970s and 1980s, only to fall under the the neo-colonial yoke of the Washington Consensus. Political oppression then gets replaced by a kind of neoliberal economic predation. And in some ways it wasn't, it, in some ways it was more and, and more, more less, less overt, but more insidious than what had come before. Venezuela was the first country to witness widespread popular revolts against the Washington consensus and against neoliberal policies as early as 1989. And the popular uprisings against austerity measures eventually coalesced around the, the person of Hugo Chavez. But it wasn't Chavez that, that willed these into being. He just is the one that emerges or the figurehead that emerges who kind of condenses all of the grievances. I, I think for millions of poor and dispossessed Venezuelans, this movement that Chavez comes to symbolize was really a breath of fresh air. But it's also, for many middle-class Venezuelans, also a it's a it's a chance to ner- turn over a news page. It's a chance to do away with the endemic corruption that's really plagued Venezuela since the the night since the the discovery of oil. So I think um, it's important to to stress to listeners the the deep political legitimacy that Chavez enjoyed with large swaths of the Venezuelan population. I think this story that's widely disseminated in the United States really falsely portrays Chavez as some kind of bloodthirsty tyrant. Um, the truth is that Chavez had fair, Chavismo had fairly moderate origins. Most of its political stances were in line with those championed by human rights organizations. So, you know, if you're if you're against something like universal health care, then clearly you're not going to love Chavismo. Um, but we're we're not talking about some kind of a, a project that begins as an authoritarian regime. 
That isn't to say that, you know, Chavismo or the Bolivarian Revolution were, were without faults, um, and certainly not to say that they were universally loved in Venezuela. They weren't. Venezuela, when I arrived in 2006, was deeply polarized. You were either a Chavista or you were the opposition. And, you know, there are moments where I would try as an outsider to, to pretend like I was neither nor and try to walk a line. And people are going to put you in one camp or the other. Uh, the other. People are always trying to discern what is he wearing? What's he, what's he acting like? What, what's, what's the language? There was, this, there was this attempt to calculate where everyone fell within the political spectrum um, and this was this is this is what made Venezuela so exciting and also kind of fraught. I think a lot of my friends and colleagues who hadn't spent time in Venezuela didn't understand what this was like until until the arrival of Trumpism in the United States. That the kind of polarization that that uh, U.S. citizens are now witnessing um, was was very much what you would have seen um, in in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Um, so around that time, I, but also the project makes sense for me or Venezuela made sense for me because the center, the epicenter, not of Chavismo, but of the opposition was the, the media. The, the private press was, was in many ways played the role of the political party of the opposition. That's because the old political elites had been discredited, uh, largely discredited because of corruption scandals. Um, and as Chavez emerges as this figure who's really adept at using and kind of playing to, to, to people's desires through media, um, the press itself actually accompanies him. He, the, the, one of the untold stories is just how, how central um, journalists were in, in bringing or in helping Chavez um, come to power. Uh, and then once he, 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 he finds himself in the presidency, the two-part ways and the, the private press really becomes kind of this the heart of the opposition. So to, to say that you're with the media in Venezuela circa 2006 is basically like saying I'm with the opposition. Okay. So yeah, that I, I guess, and hopefully that's, that's some background um, for what was going on in Venezuela, but it, it was a very, it's a very complicated, it's a very complicated situation. And it's one that I, I keep falling back for many of my students and, um, readers on the analogy of the United States um, under in the Trump era, because it's only it's only under those those conditions that you can start to imagine how how the deep polarization of, of literally everything can suddenly come to color, not just who you're voting for, but how you think about crime or how you think about something, say, I don't know, a global pandemic. Right. Um, that's that that's that was what was so weird about following crime reporters um, in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so let me pick up on that with the crime reporters, um, because you note in the book that Caracas has one of the highest rates of violent crime in the world, um, which I, I didn't know about. Um, and you follow, you participate with and observe a group of crime journalists who I think you called or they call themselves the Power Rangers. Yeah. And you really do a great job um, taking us into like the daily life and routine of crime journalists. Um, which I think people will really enjoy when they when they read the book because you deeply grounded in the actions and um, and practices of these journalists. Um, and you seem to find yourself at the morgue quite a bit, um, recruiting interviews with victims and their relatives. Um, and in their efforts to draw attention to the problem of crime, um, these journalists seem to 
um, present a particular portrait of a, of a victim, maybe like a morally upstanding victim. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could tell us about sort of the features that they're looking for and what they choose to emphasize when they're, you know, in their reporting practices. Thank you. Yeah, I think I, I when I was writing this book, one of the things that I really wanted, there were a couple things I really wanted. One for it to be readable, um, not just not just for my my friends and colleagues, but for students and family and people that and for the crime reporters themselves. I had the the really the fantastic opportunity to take a couple of these chapters back to the crime reporters, and they had their they had their own feedback, but they were generally really positive and excited. About about my attention to, to detail. Not, I'm, I'm really working not to make them out to be bad guys because they weren't. Um, they, were, they were people working under really, really difficult conditions. Um, that said, and, and many of the things that I point out about the, the, the stereotypes of who is and who isn't, not just a crime victim, but who's, a, who's potentially a perpetrator, are things that they themselves recognize. Um, and yet, recognition and being able to change that are another thing. So maybe just a little bit about crime reporting for listeners. So in most countries, and oh, wait, maybe I should back up. So yeah, Venezuela and Caracas have some of the highest homicide rates in the world. Statistically, Caracas was exceeding 100 per 100,000 homicides per year um, for most of the 20th century. Um, to put that in context, the, the first four months of the COVID crisis in, in New England and the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, that's been around 100 um, to 120 per 100,000. So these are, these are really crazy numbers. And imagine them not just over four months um, or a year, but over the course of 20 years. So crime is something that and violent crime is something that everyone in Caracas is deeply concerned about. And in some ways, because it's an existential threat, it is the kind of thing that you can report on and claim that it's that it is, or at least it should be beyond politics, because of course, life is sacred, right? And and this is the this is the thing that the crime reporters were doing. They were always walking a tightrope with with the victims of, of violence. So in most places, crime reporters usually get their information directly from the police. And when I say most places, I mean just about everywhere other than Venezuela. The the first line of contact for any good crime reporter is is are the police and the and the police reports. But because of the the depolarization, the police, most of the police, um, the the press offices of the police have been cut off from the crime reporters. So the crime reporters turn to the next best thing that they can find, which are the actual victims, uh, uh, families of crime victims. And because of poor institutions and inadequate facilities, most of those families of victims were hanging out outside of the Caracas city morgue. So every day, and I, I, I laugh, but it's, it's, I think it's in some ways only to kind of deal with the, the tragedy of this. Every day we would, as a, as a pack, between 15 and 30 journalists would go from you know this this place in downtown Caracas to the city morgue and they would hang out outside the city morgue looking for stories and everyone in Caracas knew that this was what was happening and in fact a lot of people would come to the morgue specifically looking for the journalists rather than going to their to their headquarters or sending them an email 
you would show up at the city morgue with a denunciation or an accusation or a complaint that you would try to get the, the crime reporters to cover. Most people didn't show up looking for crime reporters. Most people show, showed up in probably the most difficult moment of their lives, um, a moment when they're trying to claim the body of a loved one. And, you know, the, the crime reporters are there. It's, it is a delicate, uncomfortable, some people would say voyeuristic um, or vampiristic practice where you're trying to take these stories of suffering and you're, and you're, you're transforming them into for-profit into, into a for-profit medium. And the way that journalists dealt with that, I'll get to that in a minute, but I think maybe before I talk about that, you, you asked about victims. And one of the things that's really hard is, well, if you're sitting outside of a morgue um, and on any given day, there are upwards of 60, 70, 80 family members and relatives that are sometimes clustered or that were sometimes clustered outside of the morgue, um, how do you know who's a victim, who's the family of a victim or not? And there were these very, it took me a long time to learn what the cues were and how to go about seeing the families of victims. Um, but it wasn't just about, it wasn't just about figuring out who was and who wasn't a victim. It was also about figuring out who was a good victim and who was maybe a dangerous perpetrator. The, um, the binary that structured crime news in Caracas was the binary malandro and sano. And malandro is a word, the root is mal or evil. Um, it would be, it would mean sketchy. The term, the, the term that gets thrown around these days in the U.S. would be thug, right? So you can think of calling someone a malandro is calling them a thug. Um, sano has these medical overtones. It means healthy or pure. And as you can already guess, I, I hope that there there are there are deep racial overtones in these in these categorizations. Someone who is a malandro is far more likely to be dark skinned. Someone who is sano is far more likely to be white. And it's not just race; it's also economics, right? Class plays into this as well. Someone who's from a good home, right? Who's from the middle or upper middle class is far more likely to be judged a, a wholesome healthy, innocent victim than someone who is not. And so there was this whole category of, of kind of judging the dead that went on day in and day out on the crime beat. And it's something that the crime reporters were deeply aware of. And it's something that everyone that they approached was aware of, right? That that, that question was hanging in the air. Was the was the dead person a malandro, you know, a, a good for nothing who, who maybe deserved to die? Or was this person a sano, someone whose whose death should be um, should be mourned? And so that that was that was kind of that was the that was at the center of of all these interactions between crime reporters and the vic the families of victims. And, you know, so, so you've got that and that that's that's that in and of itself is complicated. And then on top of that, you've also got the Chavista opposition uh, binary. Right. So you remember that the press is being seen as as opposition. Um, and many of these people who are coming in that would be would be judged uh, malandro are also would be the. The, the base, the political base that make, or the people that would make up the political base of, of Chavismo, right? We're talking about the urban poor. And so, 
you have both of these dynamics going on at once. And it made for, it made for a lot of, uh, of sometimes uncomfortable and, and very difficult encounters. I think the way that, and I'll get to this in a minute, but I think um, the, the way that, that crime reporters justified what they were doing was to say that, you know, there, there's a higher cause here. It's not, this isn't about politics per se. It's about trying to, to make a really atrocious situation better. Okay. And so, and so that's really interesting because then out of this sort of complex terrain of these interactions um, with reporters and crime victims, you make this sort of larger argument about populism um, and through the lens of, of crime reporters. And you, um, and so usually arguments about populism tend to emphasize leadership or the role of the populist leader in yielding this populist sentiment. But you make this really important intervention and draw our attention to the role of media and particularly journalism in contributing to populism. And at the basis of this argument seems to be this idea of the denuncia, mm-hmm. and, um, which is a denouncement of social ills or people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I was familiar with the denuncia from, you know, from my research in Brazil. Yes. Good. Okay. It was a very Latin American sort of action. Um, but so I was wondering if you could tell us more about this, the function of the denuncia, um, and then how it relates to your larger argument about um, populism. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the thing I I ended up working with crime reporters and there's such an interesting story there, but I think, I think this is the, this is the thing that scales up. And this is what I think matters about this book for people who maybe aren't interested in Venezuela um, or, you know, maybe aren't even all that interested um, in crime or security. It's the the argument that I'm trying to make about, about the relationship between media and populism Um, to, to, as you were saying, populism is a really freighted term. And I would say at the outset that I'm not, I don't see populism as a good thing or a bad thing. It's a powerful thing. And it's a, it's a powerful, um, it's a powerful way of, of carrying out politics. Um, when I started doing this project, there was very little written on the subject of medium populism. And what was out there was frankly, very underdeveloped for two reasons. I think there were a lot of people who were trying to do empirical studies of populism that really hadn't engaged with the kind of theoretical framework that scholars had built up over the last half century. And I would say that anthropology was really, really key to that framework. Um, I would argue that an understanding of Durkheim and Levi-Strauss is really fundamental for understanding this guy, Ernesto Laclau, who really, I think, brought together the threads and solved the puzzle that for a long time was populism. I think the second problem is that most scholars working on media and populism are using these top-down methodologies, which are really poorly suited for understanding grassroots phenomena. I think to understand the origins of the current populist wave, not just in Venezuela, but around the world, you need an inductive approach. Um, So to do this book, I was having to do a lot of conceptual bridge work to link theories of populism to what I was witnessing in Venezuela. and in, in the, this, this bridge work comes about because I was trying to explain denuncias. I really did not set out to write a book about populism. I mean, I, I, was, I was writing and thinking about populism a decade ago, not because it was popular or because I thought we would be seeing this in North America or Europe, um, but because I was trying to figure out this practice of denunciation and how it was, 
how it played this defining role of journal of, of how how you go about doing journalism in Venezuela. Um, when I talk about about the denuncia to North American audiences, they sometimes get confused. So what I'm talking about are basically just public accusations. So historical analogies would be Emile Zola's famous Jacques um, in the Dreyfus affair, or Woodward and Bernstein's reporting on the on the Watergate scandal. Right? These would be denunciations, accusations that are made publicly. Um, good contemporary example would be accusations against the likes of Harvey Weinstein, Roger Ailes, Bill O'Reilly, Matt Lauer, the, the, the denunciations and accusations that, that form the backbone of the Me Too movement. And I think, I think looking at Me Too gives you a sense as to just how powerful a public denuncia can be. Um, in Venezuela, they were everywhere in the media. And I, I'm glad to hear that you see this in Brazil as well. With the exception of Colombia, I think everyone that I speak to in Latin America knows what, what a denuncia is, what it means to make a denuncia and why it would be important. But when I started writing this book, I was shocked that there was nothing, literally nothing on the topic. And I spent years looking for something in Spanish and Portuguese. Eventually, I found some stuff in French, um, but that that's another story. I think that's doubly shocking in retrospect because the practice of denunciation was central to what Silvio Wasteboard has called the, the rise of watchdog journalism in South America. So the, 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 kinds of, the, the kinds of democratic openings that happened in the 1980s are largely happening on the back of these, of these denunciations of corruption um, and, and torture, uh, largely state, um, state, state, state terrorism was what media was, was denouncing. Um, and I, I couldn't figure out why it is that no one had written on denuncias. I, I wasn't excited to write a book on denuncias. I just, um, I, I, I knew that they were fundamental to what I was doing. And so I kept looking around for someone else who had done the work for me. Um, I think no one else had done it because the, most of the work on journalism in Latin America isn't based on direct observation. There's not a lot of ethnography. Most of what we've got are studies based on interviews or these large quantitative studies. Um, and as you know, and I'm, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but ethnographers begin by observing what people are doing as opposed to what people say they are doing. And I think in that way, ethnography is far more empirical than most other uh, social scientific methods, empirical in the sense that it's based on direct observation of human behavior as opposed to someone else's observations. So I guess I knew when I was writing, uh, when I was sitting down to write this book that denuncias were key. And if I could explain why they were important, I'd be able to explain what I was seeing that was unique about Venezuelan and Latin American uh, journalism. But I was, I was, I was afraid because I was going to have to figure out my own theoretical framework. So in in my attempt to explain what denuncias were, I happened to pick up um, Ernesto Laclau's book on populist reason and then went back and read um, everything else um, that he'd written on populism going back to the 1970s and also the kind of old literature on populism in Latin America that also dates back to the 60s and 70s. And there's little that's said in this literature about media, and there's nothing about denuncias in it. But I think that the, the description that Laclau and others make of, about populism's discursive architecture is really indispensable. Um, I came to the realization after reading Laclau that, that these denunciations, um, these accusations are the, are the discursive glue that make populist mobilization possible in the first place. Um, they take these disparate, often fundamentally opposed grievances 
of victims, of people that feel they've been injured or wrong, many who have legitimately been injured and wrong, and they, they channel all of them towards a, a common enemy. I, I'm starting to say that populism is, is a grievance machine. And in order for a grievance machine to work, you, you need, you need a, a mechanism or a medium through which they can be broadcast. And that's precisely what, that's the role that media plays in populist mobilization. It, it, it aggregates and broadcasts grievances in a way that, in a way that creates this sort of, um, not just a common adversary, but a, a very, a, a shared sense of identity. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mm-hmm. And then it seems like um, talking about this idea of this grievance machine um, or grievances being this, this discursive glue that um, holds populism together. Um, so it seems like then um, to go back to the idea of leadership um, and political leadership, the politicians then respond to, to this, um, you know, this, I think you call it an imagined community of, of aggrieved people. Yeah. Um, and this becomes um, also important in the book because I think toward the end, you talk about how Maduro responds to this, um, you know, to these grievances. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that or how, how Chavez and or Maduro yeah. respond to, um, you know, all of these, this mountain of denunciations that you're, you're finding. So there, there's this term charisma that has this really long and weird uh, history. And it's got this, it's got an anthropological history. Um, the people that usually when people talk about charisma, they refer to Max Weber. Um, but Weber gets the term um, from his attempt from, from early anthropological attempts to, to describe um, mana, um, this, the, and the ways in which magic works. And, um, and, and what's interesting about mana is that there's something there, there's there's something kind of empty within in the middle of it. You can't really fully explain or, or or wrap your hands around why it is that that certain things or would would coalesce around objects or people or or totems or symbols or whatnot. Um, and it's that it's that the kind of emptiness um, and the, the productivity of emptiness that I think a lot of of theories of populism really build on. And I. I let me let me let me back up a little bit before I get to Maduro's, the way that Maduro responded. Um, maybe with a, a really simple definition by what I mean when I'm talking about uh, populism, I I've been starting to say, and I think this is a fair distillation of most of the populism uh, literature that populism is the Jacobin logic of popular sovereignty, and there are three parts of that: Jacobin logic and popular sovereignty. And by logic, I just mean that the populism follows a very distinctive pattern, and it's one that's predictable and that we can see over and over and over again. Um, it's it's recursive, it, it's fractal, and that it's always it's constantly changing. But the 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 moving the ways in which it 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 evolves are are in many ways um, very they're they're shared across different populist projects. So there, it's got a pattern. When I say that the, the pattern is Jacobin. 
I didn't want to use the word Manichaean or I'm polarizing, but that's what I'm basically getting at, right? Populism is is militant. It's um, it's in a word maybe revolutionary always, um, and it's popular sovereignty that I think is really the key to understanding what populism is and what role leaders play in it and what role charismatic leaders play in it. Um, by popular sovereignty. And in anthropology, we've had a lot of conversations about sovereignty, and this is also in in political theory. Um, But I don't think we've had enough conversations about popular sovereignty. Popular sovereignty is belief in government of the people, by the people, for the people. It's really the foundation of of democratic politics, this idea of self-government. But there's this problem in ideas of popular sovereignty that go back... um, you know, to the, to the 18th century. And that's that, you know, the people that supposedly rule, that's, that's an imagined community. I'm not saying that it's not real, but we, the people is kind of democracy's necessary fiction. The people are never present in their entirety, in their fullness. That would be impossible. You can't get all 30 something million Venezuelans together in one room or even on the same, you know, even, even all together in, in a, in a chat room, right. Online. The point here is that democracy is always ha- has this sort of representative or mediated element, um, and populism is claiming to to surmount that. It's claiming to do the impossible. It claims to speak directly for the people. Um, and then the question is: is how does something that we know is impossible become plausible? How how do you mobilize millions of individuals from from different walks of of life? Um, and it's and it's through that kind of it's through the articulation of grievances that 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 happens. Um, but even that, at some point, um, at, at some point, you need a connector. You need someone or something that brings everything together. And there are kind of different charismatic objects or different objects that 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 people or that 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 popular attention can start to focus on. And I think Chavez was one truly brilliant. Um, charismatic object. He was able to channel all of these these uh, these concerns in a way that that appealed to a, to a broad base that he was able to maintain. That starts to fall apart with Maduro. Um, Maduro didn't ha- doesn't have the same kind of um, doesn't have the same skill and plasticity as Chavez, I, and that's not that's not really a critique of Maduro. I don't think many people do have that that kind of that same skill um, and charisma. Um, that that kind of mysterious je ne sais quoi. Um, but the problem is, if crime is so, for the opposition, crime was one of the major was one of the major things, one of the major grievances that the, the political movement was starting to coalesce around. And Chavez tried to he started to kind of make headway into to addressing the problem, but he never really he never really succeeded. Um, and the problem was, I think, for for a left or a progressive project, um, it's been very difficult to think through what a left art of security might be. Um, you know, what what does what it we we have really good left critiques of of all kinds of things, right, around problems of security, and I think all of these left critiques are absolutely um, are absolutely justified critiques of, of police violence. Um, but I don't know if we have right now developed a, a kind of a left solution in a place like Venezuela, where crime is absolutely a real problem. And it's one that affects 
the, the poor and dispossessed more than it affects anyone else. You need some kind of solution. And I think, I think Chavismo, um, one of, one of the biggest failings of, of the Bolivarian revolution was its inability to actually address that problem. And I, I, that's, this isn't a critique. I don't know who could, I mean, the, the problem has been so overwhelming. Um, and, you know, what, what you would have needed to do, including the reform of the police and the judiciary and creating a, a kind of a, maybe even a culture of respective, I mean, what you would have had to have done maybe seemed insurmountable. Um, nonetheless, the, the problem that I see or what, what happens later is that, you know, that, that, that crime continues to be this Achilles heel for Chavismo, uh, especially under Maduro. And rather than taking the, some sort of progressive tact, um, Maduro reverts to the very thing that Chavez came to power denouncing, which was Mano Dura. Um, and Mano Dura, for, for those of you that, that, that don't work in Latin America, this is tough on crime. Um, and it's, it's an approach that basically singles out poor people of color. Um, and rather than trying to, to solve the problem of crime, it literally just targets the poor. Um, and under Maduro, we've seen these, these death squads proliferating in the barrios where, where it's not, where it's not the, the problem of crime isn't actually being solved. What's happening is that you have, you have poor people being slaughtered by, by police supposedly under the banner of a left revolution. And I think one of the, the tragedies that one of the real tragic stories of the, of the Bolivarian revolution is how it goes from being a, a project that at least in theory is trying to address directly the very problems of, of people living um, in, in the barrios and in, in, in poor informal settlements, really trying to, to solve problems of equal economic and political and, and legal inequality. Um, and at least on this topic has done a, a, ends up doing a 180 in part because of the pressure exerted on the government by by media outlets that are spending lots of time denouncing violence. Um, I don't think it's fair to blame the media for this. I mean, it, it did become an overly politicized um, domain that everything in Venezuela became overly politicized. Um, and you know, to 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 the crime reporters in the crime reporters' defense, um, denouncing endemic. Endemic insecurity is not something that I think that they should be held accountable for. I do think the ways in which um, crime was largely placed on the backs and made the responsibility or, or made, the, um, made the fault of poor people of color, that's, that's, that's the responsibility that the press bears, right? The, the, perpetra- the perpetration of a racialized, um, classed binary of malandro and sano. And I think I think most of the crime reporters would would own that to some extent, um, but I don't think they can be held responsible for the for the return of of tough on crime or monodura. I think I think tragically that that's 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 uh, that's 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 on Maduro's hands. That's in Maduro's hands. Mm-hmm. And so you you hinted at this um, a bit earlier about the polarization that we're seeing that you saw in Venezuela that we now see in the United States. Um, not that they're the exact same thing, 
But um, but it seemed to me that your argument has wider implications. Um, and, and you mentioned this too, the argument about populism moves, you know, beyond Venezuela. Um, and so I was wondering if you see any particular parallels between um, Caracas and Venezuela and, and the United States in regards to your argument about populism and, and journalism and media. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think it's important not to kill the messenger. And by that, I don't mean me. I, I don't want to see people slipping into a conspiratorial blame the media rhetoric. Um because I don't think this is just about the media. I think the first and most important parallel to draw for all of us is the rise of populism globally over the last 25 years, which I think is is directly linked to the failure of what we might call the neoliberal settlement. In the United States, we've seen the results of three decades of expanding economic inequality. And also, I think, attempts to preserve that inequality by playing on racial and ethnic animus. Um Wherever you have populist movements, you're going to see strong influence and a strong role played by the media. So I think of Juan Perón and his use of radio in Argentina. Um, Chavez and Trump both were really masters of, of the reality television genre. I mean, before Trump became the, the Twitter president, he was the reality television tra- uh, president. And Hugo Chavez was incredibly adept with this, this program called Allo Presidente, in which he would every Sunday... He was he would take calls and he would sing and he would dance and he would he would uh, speak directly to Venezuelans. Um, And this was this was very much a kind of a reality television genre, um, this attempt to kind of bridge the gap between him and people that he was coming into contact with. So all of that is very similar. Um, Many of the when when I see the um, the 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 tactics and the kind of the war that goes on between Trump and the media. I'm very, very, uh, the, the, the shades of, of what went on between Chavez and the press in Venezuela. I mean, I, I see that every day. Um, I also, I, I also think it's, I think it's important to, to point out that that if we were going to draw, if we're going to try to imagine what it, what, what things look like in Venezuela um, and to, to maybe give a U.S. analogy in some ways, I think the the ways in which the press or the media treats uh, Bernie Sanders might be a, a closer analogy. I think um, I think you know while there was always skepticism of Sanders, and I think a lot of people saw attacks from Sanders within the media. There there weren't um, there wasn't outright you know total hostility. Um, in the same way that I don't know if there was outright hostility at first towards Trump. It's that the the relationship sours over time. Um, there's a lot more to say. I will say the last time I drew an analogy between uh, between between Trump and Chavez, I wouldn't say that I got in trouble. But what was really interesting um, was that a um, was that I suddenly ended up in Breitbart news, um, and I think in some ways there, that was ironic because what I was what I'm discuss what I'm describing in this book is precisely the um, is precisely that 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 pattern where any attempt. Um, even any attempt to kind of draw parallels or to to make a not to make some sort of description that 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 one's one people who may not agree with one politically suddenly becomes a, a matter of life and death, right? Where where one isn't where one's not attacked or or questioned on the basis of the validity of the parallel um, or whether the facts that one brings up, but an entire kind of 
an entire media apparatus is mobilized against you. Um, and, you know, that's been something that's been going on for a long time in the United States, but that has really been accelerating in recent years. Um, I guess the last thing that I would say, and that I think is important for us to, to pay attention to, is that in Latin America, I think the rise of populism vis-a-vis the media was largely a kind of a progressivist populism that was on the rise. At least in the United States, um, it's been a different kind of populism for for a long time. Um, And again, I don't think there's anything wrong with populism. I think populism is, as I was trying to say, I think there's, it's, it's kind of in many ways, the revolutionary spirit of democracy and democracy doesn't always go the way you want it to. Um, Democracy is dangerous um, and it's often it, it often can lead towards demagoguery and worse. But I think um, I think in the United States, we've seen this rise of, 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 conserv- of a conservative or right-wing populism going back to the 1970s and the 1980s um, with radio and starting with, with Rush Limbaugh. And there's a really, there's an interesting and I think important genealogy that people should look at. Um, it's Nixon that first begins decrying the media and this kind of media conspiracy um, that that's been posed against him, and in many ways, an alternative media apparatus was constructed out of that. And that media apparatus was one that was not going to hold to the liberal settlement. It was one that was that was and is deeply radical. Um, and so this is this is what there is populism in the media in the United States. Um, but I think if you were to look at MSNBC or CNN. As the as the banner carriers of that, I think you're. Pro- I think we would be looking in the wrong place. I think those those outlets are start are really responding to a trend or a tendency that's been underway um, for much longer. Mm-hmm. And then there's another parallel, I guess, with your in your research methods. Um, so I wanted to turn this question towards um, towards your research methods that you use um, in the book, where. There's this parallel, I think, between journalists and ethnographers. Yeah. Um, you did a great job also explaining a little bit earlier about how um, ethnographers are, you know, directly observing um, people's behavior. Um, and I've seen anthropologists of media also talk about sort of par- parallels um, between journalists and ethnographers that they might share certain practices and attributes, but of course, we're not you know, doing the same thing. There are very important differences. Um, yeah. The similarities might be the actual act of observation that you talk about, interviewing people, listening to people's stories and testimonies, um, recording them through notes. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering um, if those aspects of you being an ethnographer um, helped you to blend in with, um, with the journalists that you were working with or how, how that kind of, you know, laid out for you. Um, and so the question is also just generally about the ethnographic um, yeah. endeavor that you took on as well. Um, anything that you want to say about that? So I'm working, it was, it was very convenient, right? Because I, I, to your point, yeah, I absolutely did blend in. Um, the, the report, the crime reporters were really generous in allowing me to tag along for right. The better part of two years, it was more than two years. Um, but it was really generous of them to do that. But it was also, it was easy because I didn't stand out. I was there with a notebook and a recorder. And very often I looked just like a reporter. Now, whenever anyone asked, um, because I didn't have press credentials, they, I explained, they explained he's an anthropologist. He's doing a study of the, of the press, et cetera. Um, 
and people would, you know, when people are coming to make a denunciation or when they're going, if they, if they're willing to speak to the press, what, what's one anthropologist in all of this? Um, so, you know, for, for the most part, it was a really easy ethnographic environment to work in far easier than it would have been working with say the police um, or, or anyone else, um, or victims for that matter. And, and, you know, so a lot of people working on, on security, I think in some ways go to the media because it's, it's, it's the easiest in the, the people that were the hardest to actually pin down the reporters allowed me to go with them day in and day out, but actually getting interviews from them. And the, the couple of days that I pulled out a camera to take photos really freaked them out. Um, I think I think that the experience of of being on one end of 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 news made them hypersensitive and hyper aware of just how of how delicate um, and how fragile it is to hand over the representation of yourself to someone else. Um, and so I think in that sense, they were really um, they were wary. But I also am deeply grateful to them for for having some trust, especially given how how deeply polarized the, the environment was and and the fact is is that most of the reporters that I were working with were not we're not talking about elites we're talking about people that are um, all most of them are college educated but they're nonetheless in a, in a precarious position not just within the labor market but politically um, so they were really they were really lovely I, I think um, what 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 maybe I'm alighting and what maybe, maybe will make people a little bit uncomfortable is, is the question of ethics in all of this um, representing and, and speaking for the dead. And I wouldn't say that I'm, I, I would say that, that the way that the crime reporters solved this was by saying that, you know, the, the denunciations, the, the testimonies that we're bearing witness to, these are attempts to, to solve and make the, the problem better. Um, and yet there is, um, there is something, if you were not always troubled by the business of, of crime reporting, either as an anthropologist or as a, as a journalist, um, something perhaps is broken. I think, I think for a lot of us, one of the things that I, that I noticed over time um, was that you, in order to just survive the daily dose of trauma, of, of hearing these, these horrific stories and, and grieving alongside other people. Um, there were different ways that people, that people coped with it, if that makes sense. Um, and, and it's weird because I think, I think, I don't think there's ever an end to the coping with it for, for crime reporters or for, for anthropologists who are kind of in these positions. I'm just hoping that, that, that what I've written, um, will 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 be worth um worth the kind of the invasiveness of the ethnography i i don't i don't think that ethnography is is always um always or necessarily oppressive um but no, neither do i think um you know that we're always giving back adequately um to the people from which we're borrowing so i hope I hope that there's something in, in all of this book that, that at least justifies all the, the time and energy that, that other people gave me. But it was, yeah, it was, it was very, it was very interesting to kind of put yourself in the shoes of a crime reporter for the, for those two and a half years. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and the book is very, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great contribution. And it's very, I, I liked how you said earlier, you wrote the book to be, um, to be, to be read. Um, and, and I found myself as I was going through the book, um, it's, it's very, um, it kind of walks you through, through your arguments and, and it really introduces you to the people and um, the situations, um, I, you know, very there, well. There's that thing that I remember in the beginning of, of when I was reading, you know, in grad school, anthropologists are supposed to quote unquote, not go native, which I don't know what that means. But the thing about working alongside crime reporters and journals for so long was that I really came to agree with their, their desire um, to write for an audience. Um, and I, I really wanted to write a book like in the way that, in a, in a way that, that actually would resonate with them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Definitely does. Um, and so we've taken up a lot of your time here, um, on the, with the interview. And so I just wanted to ask you one last question, um, which is what you're, what you're working on next. What have you turned your attention to after um, finishing at least the writing and publishing of this, of this great book? Oh, the question that I'm dreading. So, so there, it's very hard to get back to Venezuela. And in many ways I'm really, I'm deeply connected to and, and want to be doing research in Venezuela. The, the plan was actually next month, I was going to be heading to the, to the Venezuela Colombia border because I've been very interested in, in the parallel economy in Venezuela. Um, these, these folks that were called bachaqueros, um, a bachaco is a big ant. And I wasn't interested in narco trafficking or anything uh, crazy like that. I was just interested in, in the, in the, in the parallel market in food. Um, which was something that happened during the political, the, the economic crisis of the of 2013, 2014, 2015, up until the present. It's been really survival had for a while became really it, it, it was it was predicated on this parallel market, and that's a long story to tell. But that's kind of one of the things that I'm looking at. I'm trying to not move away from media, but I've become very interested in political economy, and so that's one one project that I'm trying to pursue, but it would be difficult to do it if I can't get back to Venezuela. The other one that I've been, that I've been tossing around is weirdly, um, it's a quantitative project. Um, somewhere in the book, I, I noticed that I've argued that, that populism, you know, really, really kind of relies on a discourse of truth and lies and one of the things that I'm thinking, I mean, I, this was a project that I've titled "The L Word," um, and and this is this is not in reference to the the fantastic show, "The L Word," but um, it's it's the L Word is lie. Um, the word lie, or to call someone a liar, at least in the U.S. press, was was unthinkable until quite recently. Um, and so, one of the things I'm really interested in doing is looking, trying to trace the history of media and populism in the United States. Um, but doing it through this one word, which is not me trying to walk away from ethnography or stop being an anthropologist. It's to take this insight that I've gotten from ethnography and to see whether or not I might be able to to use another methodology to to follow it in the United States. But we'll see. We'll see. I, I, I've started. I've started down the road of this project. I I, uh, I I hope that I can finish it. Stay tuned. I guess. <laughs> 
Well, that sounds like a really important and very timely project. And so we look forward to seeing more about that. And um, so I want to thank you, Robert, for sharing, for writing this book and for sharing it with us. The book is called Deadline, Populism and the Press in Venezuela. And thank you so much for, for sharing your insights with us on the podcast. Thank you, Reagan. It was a huge pleasure. 